This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is brought to you by Music Box Films, presenting Lost Illusions, the César award-winning lush adaptation of the classic Balzac novel. When an aspiring poet joins a cynical team of journalists in 19th century Paris, he soon discovers that the written word can be an instrument of both beauty and deceit. Now in select theaters, including film at Lincoln Center. Welcome to another episode of the Film Comment Podcast, and this week... I think we are the TV comment podcast or serial comment podcast or... Say sort of like an in-between space. I think we're going to cover, you know, we'll have one foot in both camps. Yeah, we're we're question mark comment podcast because what is film anyway nowadays? Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crute. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. These last two weeks, HBO Max has been serving up catnip for cinephiles with Olivier Asayas's new mind-bendingly metatextual show, Irma Vep. In 1996, Asayas made a film with the same title, about the attempts of an aging French filmmaker to remake Louis Fouillade's classic silent serial, Les Vampires, with Maggie Chung as the original vamp, Irma Vep. The new series expands on and reimagines that premise with a mise-en-abeam structure. Here, a neurotic filmmaker seemingly modeled on Asayas remakes Fouillade's serial for a contemporary binge TV audience. Alicia Vikander plays Mira Harburg, an American pop heroine who is cast as Irma Webb amongst a glossy transnational cast. In the four episodes available to critics so far, Irma Vep engages with its multiple sources, its medium, and the lives of its creators in increasingly surprising and thought-provoking ways. On this week's podcast, we invited critics Adam Naiman and Beatrice Loeza to dig into the series' endless rabbit holes and riffs on the history of serials, cinema, and, well, content. We hope you enjoy the conversation. We're talking about Irma Vep. <laughs> is the context for my introduction. Talking about Irma Vep, the new series that Olivia Sayas has uh, just debuted on HBO Max last week, which was touted initially as a remake of his 96 movie, but it's something far, far more complex. And to talk about it, we have two guests. Uh, one of them just wrote about the series, wrote a really interesting piece about it, and the other has a lot of knowledge of early serials that she's about to share with us. So introduce yourselves. I'm 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 Adam Name and I'm the one who's in Toronto. Cool. <laughs> Our man north of the border. And I'm Beatrice Liza. I'm just here in Brooklyn, and I'm the serial person. You're the serial person. So when Clint and I first saw the series, we didn't know how to make what to make of it. We saw just episode one, and I was like, I can't tell if this is ridiculous or if this is a genius gossip girlification of Irma Vep, um, the movie. Gossip girlification, I have to say, I said this before realizing that Jeremy O'Harris is an executive producer, so there is definitely some, you know, influence, I I think, of, may I call it prestige trash TV. Trash TV with some production value and cool hip references. I mean, I have to, I admit, I will freely admit that I after that the I watched the first episode and thought it was just bad. I thought it was not good. And only after watching deeper into the series did I come to kind of appreciate what was going on. And I don't know if I, if I immediately would, Gossip Girl was my first instinct. But yes, that kind of world, I think, was definitely 
more present on the surface in that first episode than maybe what comes later. And I was initially dissuaded by Clint's uh, reaction, but then I read Adam's piece and I was like, okay, this actually sounds like it gets very interesting. So I watched the rest and I think it actually, I am now careening close to Adam's judgment that it is brilliant. We've only seen four episodes, folks, so we can't make any definitive verdict. But Adam, maybe you could start us off about your first impressions of the show. Yeah, I'm really interested in the idea of a niche that's actually like much bigger on the inside than on the outside. So like looking at it from the outside, it's like this French director who is not a household name in the United States is remaking a film that was well received, but by no means a, a breakthrough sensation a movie that's about 25 years out of date and being in date really matters for Irmavep because it's such a state of the union type movie. It's like, this is what global cinema looks like in 1996, right? So that seems pretty niche, especially in a sea of streaming content, even when there's more famous directors, even more famous movie directors making TV shows, leaving aside how many TV people make TV and streaming. But then you get on the inside and it's just like rabbit hole within rabbit hole within within rabbit hole because if you're at all familiar with the original film and the circumstances around the film and the personal circumstances around SAS making a a movie kind of enthralled to his star and future wife and future ex-wife Maggie Chung and all the self-reference and self-depiction in this series and then certain twists that happen after the first two episodes which by the time people are listening that's all that will have aired but then things happen later on where it's not just rabbit holes within rabbit holes. It's just like this endlessly booby trapped thing. And it's gigantic inside. And from the outside, it looks like a show that is not a water cooler show. This is not going to be Barry, you know, or it'll or, be like or, water cooler, like at the, uh, you know, the, the philosophy department. Water well, that's what I said. I said, it's like a wine tasting show, not yeah. a water cooler show. Right. Right. Philosophy department, I think film studies department. <laughs> but like, but where we kind of all live, it's got these fathoms to it, these depths to it that are really spacious, right? And then there's also the fact that within this narrative about, for anyone who doesn't know the basic story, about a French director remaking an ancient serial kind of out of step with fashion and also kind of trying to contour it to fashion, you know, like how do you redo a, an 80-year-old serial? Uh, you know, within that story, I think it touches on more things about entertainment and advertising and branding and transnational cinema than almost any, you know, almost any property I can think of. It, it's got its it's got its mind on a lot of things. You know, that's why I think it'd be fun for us to talk about. I think that, yeah, the original was a picture of a time, as you said, but a picture of change too, and changed a change in cinema and the way that people were watching things and the way that um, things were being films were being made. And uh, you mentioned sort of global commerce, and I think what one of the great things about this th this update does seem to kind of have that same project at its heart, but you know, for twenty twenty two. So what it's tracking is like an entirely different and perhaps more overwhelming change across not just cinema but the way that images are are consumed more broadly i mean just to give also listeners a sense of you know what the show is about because it i don't think it's very clear even after the first episode what it's really about i don't know if i have a, an answer but when the first movie was about maggie chung playing herself uh coming to paris to shoot an update of 
Le Vampire, the Fayad uh, serial made by a director named René Vidal, played by uh, Jean-Pierre Lowe. This, like I said initially, I thought that this was like a remake of that, but it's not. It's like something else. It's it's about a director like Asayas, I guess, who made a movie in the 90s called Irma Vep and is now making some kind of TV series version of it. And the show is like, a, you know, behind the scenes, how the sausage is made kind of production that is following this director and his star, who's Alicia Vikander and all the other people around this production uh, as they're doing this kind of remaking, reimagining expansion in the present day. So it's quite difficult also to like describe the layers going on here. And I think, Adam, you mentioned initially you think that the René Vidal character is, you know, an updated version of the Jean-Pierre Lowe character in... René Vidal is the director, in both, right. the name of the director in both in the film and the series. And, the, and you think that he is, but actually as the series progresses, he's more like a reflection of Olivier Assayas. And I think for me, what has been really interesting so far is that the show is skewering or commenting on certain realities of contemporary uh, television and media in general, media production in general, but it's also being those things. Like it's embodying a contemporary commercial series and it's like really indulging those like more salacious aspects, the... Uh, you know the the fun of stretching, sprawling. You know the 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 ability to sprawl that a series offers, and all these little subplots. The the word I want to throw out there, maybe Beatrice can can pick up and play with it, or or you guys can. It's just the word that that strikes me as being so descriptive of the original film and this, which is slippage. Right, there is so much slippage going on here, and there is slippage within the fiction of people between the roles that they occupy on a set, the roles that they occupy on a screen, the roles that they occupy in life. There's so much slippage between the different versions of Ermavep, not just between those two versions of Ermavep, but their different versions and reenactments of Vampire, and there's so much slippage for the viewer. And this is what I mean by if you're on the inside of this structure, if you're on the inside of this particular rabbit hole it's a destabilizing thing to watch because much like clint i will say the first episode i was extremely dubious and that dubiousness is seeded in along with all the brilliance because there's a certain awkwardness and ambition to what he's trying i i thought it wasn't work. i was like this is just not working yeah i mean so i actually like the first episode and, and the following two kind of uh, lost me a little bit and, and kind of back on board with the fourth one um so different reaction there but um I mean, I, I am sort of an easy sell for this in a sense. Um, you know, uh, from the get-go, I, I am just sort of fascinated with the fact that, um, you know, a, a filmmaker as interesting as SAS would want, want to re-engage and then re-engage with this origin to moment in, in film history. Um, and then to think through the current state of film is, is just an endlessly fascinating thing to me, you know, plus the fact that being someone that's sort of interested in French film and its history, it's sort of cabinet in the sense that um, in the way that it's in conversation with the original, uh, but also just a delightful showcase of you know, some of the most distinctive French and, and European actors working right now. I mean, you have Jean Babibard, Vincent Macaigne, who plays Pene uh, Vidal, and it's just like this great comic, dramatic French actor who's worked with SAS before and, and several other like French films who, it's not as well known in the States, but, but should be. And 
Lars Edinger and Alec de Cass and, and people like that who are all just bring a certain star presence uh, to their roles. Um, and so, I mean, I just appreciate the fact that, you know, he, he's remaking this in this era of streaming, which is, you know, film and TV is undergoing this period of transformation that's totally new in the same way that it was undergoing a period of transformation at the end of the 90s with the original Arm of App. And these, these works are sort of meditations on what the film industry might look like met with these possibilities of, of change. And, you know, if there's any room for independent cinematic visions within an industry uh, that will make that vision sort of always already, I guess, complicit or automatically interconnected in a network of shady or gross or just straight up stupid commercial interests. And, and I think that is massive perfume campaigns. Right. It's much more prominent uh, in, in the series. Um, and so, you know, for me, SAS continues to be fascinated with Le Vampire because, you know, for him and, and for several filmmakers before him, I mean, everyone from uh, like the surrealist to, um, you know, just of the French New Wave, blah, blah, blah. You know, to them, the vampire sort of embodies that inventive, generative spirit that sort of revolutionized cinema and, and allowed it to sort of become an art form. I mean, um, so, I mean, I guess if we're going to talk about the beginning of film serials, uh, which, which does kind of connect to how we think of TV these days in a sort of bizarre way, but, you know, the film serials were um, a, a kind of mode of film popular at the advent of cinema, and they were inspired by magazines and newspaper serial literature that became popular in the 19th century. Um, you know, some of the great novelists, you know, Dickens, George Eliot, even Hemingway and Fitzgerald had their works serialized. Um, and, you know, that sort of appealed to a similar uh, dynamic as today, the, the, the whole binge watching cliffhanger phenomenon, like that was sort of the reason why you know, novels and like eventually these silent films were, were serialized in such a way because it just kind of got people coming back for more. Um, so, you know, the first film serials were, were American made in like the proto Hollywood studios at the time. I think the first one was like 1912. Um, and they were quite short and, and didn't really feature much in terms of plot or characterization. Um, but above all, they were just known for their action and, and stunt sequences, um, which kind of made sense at the time because you know, the appeal of, of silent cinema was, was quite different um, from like, you know, the way we would appreciate serious cinema today. Um, but, you know, it was like the equivalent of going to see like a carnival show. You know, tickets were a nickel and people who would, would go in and see these sorts of cheap spectacles and sort of bask in the novelty of it all in a very sort of unintellectual way. Um, and, and so like the popular mode of these early serials were, um, were actually like adventure or mystery, adventures or mysteries featuring uh, typically like female leads. And so like the first big serial was called, you know, What Happened to Mary? Um, and then there were other female titled serials 
Adventures of Kathleen, Hazards of Helen, Perils of Polly, and stuff like that. <laughs> um, and so all of these were like a huge success in the US, um, but also in France. So like, you know, at the time, France was also sort of beginning its, its film industry. And then the fact that these other female-led serials were so popular was kind of posed a threat to like the French film industry. Um, and so, you know, then the executives at Gaumont, which was like, you know, the first French film studio, pretty much commissioned Rifuyad that you need to make a serial now too. <laughs> um, and so Le Vampire was one of his more successful ones. And then one of his just more weirdly outro ones. I mean, and it was sort of trying to capture part of the thrill of what the audience found so thrilling about, you know, these other Hollywood adventure serials. And so, you know, Le Vampire on the one hand, it's, it's a very early, if not like the earliest instance of a film that established this sort of fantastic crime thriller genre. Um, and of course there are some really iconic images, you know, Musidora, the cat suit that, you know, made very sexy in this whole new fresh and palpable way, the idea of, of a criminal underground, um, of burglaries and, and misdeeds. Um, and, you know, all of these things but like in a way that wasn't just like written or imagined, like it was actually visualized, um, you know, on the streets of Paris and these very real recognizable like Parisian rooftops. Um, and, you know, on top of all of that, you know, the, the heroine was very different from like the American female adventure, adventure serial ladies who are often in these like victim roles or situations where they had to elude danger. Um, you know, despite the fact that the original the vampire has a detective that's trying to solve the crimes, you know, that almost was just part of the structure, but no one's actually rooting for him. He's almost like laughably ineffectual. No one wants him to win. People just want to see the vampires. Yeah. And one of the jokes in the series is that the director, René Vidal, himself seems to, you know, not be rooting for his not his protagonist, but, you know, the, the good guy, the, the moral protagonist. And the actor playing him is constantly commenting on how his character is not powerful or masculine enough or is being, yeah. like, <laughs> sidelined in various ways. That's very funny. I know. It's, I I love that bit of, of the new shows. I think it's hilarious how Vincent he doesn't realize how unimportant and how mocked his, his character actually is. And he's often trying to convince uh, uh, David Dahl to give him motivation or, or backstory to explain the reasons why he's doing something, you know, which to me kind of gestures at the whole like nerdy cinematic debate around, you know, the necessity of avoiding plot holes and properly developing a character along certain rigid lines and, and including elements that, that move the plot forward, which the vampire is like, it completely embodies the opposite of that. I mean, like the whole manner of its production was just based on improvisation and like whatever Fuyad came up with on the spot or Mosadora came up on the spot, it was just about throwing these actors who, you know, many of these people were like theater actors. They were just thrown into like cinematic acting situations and like trying to figure out how to do something inventive and new and often very dangerous. Um, and it, it's funny that, he tries to reproduce it here. They, they try to kind of do some stunts and sometimes, you know, the producers keep them from 
really putting themselves in too much danger because of the insurance. But you know, in other cases, they do the stunts and it's not glamorous at all. It's just, you know, resulting in some silly accident that's ultimately mocked. Well, I do like, so both the 96 movie and the series obviously have uh, excerpts of the original Les Vampires and recreations that are being made. And what you're saying, Beatrice, made me think of something that I, you know, I find really interesting is that in the movie, uh, presumably the, you know, version that uh, the old René Vidal is making is like very experimental, right? The excerpts you see are really experimental. They are silent uh, and they feature a lot of um, like jagged cutting and, you know, even animation, that sort of thing. And then here... And no one really questions all of that in the 96 movie. Um, and here there's all these questions about, but this doesn't make sense. Why would this character do this? The plotting doesn't make sense. The character isn't you know, motivated enough. And that also kind of speaks to, I think, how we've started to talk about, well, how we talk about TV versus cinema, obviously, uh, but also how we talk about, you know, even auteurs and auteurist cinema now is is so different. And, um, and I think... The other thing that's really striking to me from what you were saying is that Fayad's serial was also commissioned and made in a sense to copy the commercial success of something that was happening like across the ocean. And so there is a, an irony also to the purest way in which people talk about Fayad like now and in the in the new series uh, and talk about how like that was pure art, like this is just something that is being made to feed the content economy. Yeah, it was kind of trash culture at the time and i mean other than the surrealists i believe in like the situationists recognizing it as something more powerful but right it was only reappraised like much later on as being this great art form I mean, actually not much later on but like 15 years later so the height of art but i also think in the new one um the great comedy of it is that he's he's remaking it very, very close. I mean, we see like actual sequences from the original um, and then we see like his recreation, but the, the new version is sort of like laughably edgy and sleek and modern and just feels a little artificial and the whole thing just kind of, to me, like kind of pales in comparison. Yeah, it looks like Downton Abbey, I mean, or something like that. Yeah. It looks like this peerless, like... Yeah. I mean, we should talk about this wonderful motif that isn't at first glance a motif because it's just so second nature which is people watching clips on their phones this this happens about 10 times per episode and it's a different mode of production than the 90s irma vet could represent they talk about irma vet they watch it on vhs though and a laser disc at one point i think yeah they watch it on vhs and they do reference and it's the same cutting between but i mean here he's constantly in the middle of conversations they're doing a combination of like screen grab youtube viewing wikipedia citation they're beefing up their own arguments that alicia vikander's character mira is like half remembering and half internet citing as she's talking about musadora and her and her history and so that idea of a uh, an ancient and it is ancient at this point we're talking about a century's difference an ancient serial being looked at in clips on phones is sort of the metonym for what the whole show is right Old content is new content. How do we look at this stuff? Vampire never really belonged to the movie theaters anyway, or if it belonged to the movie theaters, it was in a way that, you know, almost, you know, as you were saying, more sort of carnivalesque in its presentation, very theatrical. He also, it's very clear every time you see them shooting the movie, not just that they're trying to reproduce this old analog kind of movie making, they're not cutting corners with CGI. They're not 
adapting it into a superhero movie. They're not adapting it into a comic book movie. They're keeping it as a kind of turn of the century serial, despite not even totally making it period. Yeah. And also, like, it makes no sense. Like, they and they acknowledge this over and over again. Like, but but it also proves how much vampire, however intentional this was, it's always an allegory of cinema, right? You look at all the motifs that are floating around in that material. They are about staging, stage managing, illusionism, mesmerism, mind control, making role playing, people, role playing, make, making people believe they're seeing things that are not there putting ideas in people's head and basically, you know, the idea of a populace that communicates uh, a criminal underground that works like a production team, you know, quite, con quite yeah, conspiratorially to yeah. create images, even images on stage and they stage assassinations and murders in public venues. This is stuff that is so deep in the DNA of, of crime throwers, as Beatrice was saying, you know, you, you don't get Lang without this. You don't get Hitchcock without this. Uh, and, Asayas is in his way such a rigorously cinephilic filmmaker he recognizes now I think in 2022 more than in the 90s how much everything is like Le Vampire right how much everything is like this because in the 90s it is constantly referred to how out of step this remake is with what is happening to global cinema because movies are still movies now especially the way they leverage the actress played by Alicia Vikander and the fact that her choice is not between this and costume dramas. Her choice is like, do I do Silver Surfer or I do Vampire? And they're very smart to indicate that they're kind of the same choice. The whole scene with the financier who comes in and basically makes it clear that like this is this entire production is basically just like a sweetener for a bigger business deal and that like they could give a shit about what about the actual series like what it actually turns out to be yeah i mean what is interesting i think adam what you're getting at is the fayad series also came at a time when you know cinema of attractions which is what you know uh, like tom gunning has written about early cinema as cinema of attractions which was a techno spectacle like right people came to watch the technical magic of cinema the tricks that cinematic technology could achieve was like meeting narrative right so it's kind of like how do you turn a cinema of attractions into a narrativized um story into into a narrativized form and i've been thinking a lot while watching this series you know, if you think about it in a certain sense, superhero movies, Silver Surfer, Doomsday, what, which sounds like a real movie, uh, a movie that Alicia Vikander's character has just made before coming to shoot Irma Vep in the series. You know, just thinking about how these uh, superhero and big blockbuster cinema, what that has done to the idea of cinema of attractions, because they are also techno spectacles. In a sense, you go there to see like what a lot of money and film technology can do. But somehow there isn't that sense of enchantment. And I think maybe the series is grappling with, okay, we've come this far in the history of this medium technologically, but how do you bring back that sense of en enchantment? And I've been thinking a little about how uh, it also has to do with an eroticism that Asayas really emphasizes in the series, the eroticism of the Irma Vep figure, uh, which uh, Musadora was really aware of. But if you think of all the costume dramas that have women in tight leather outfits, all the like Marvel movies and DC movies who have men and women in costumes and, you know, doing things that are like looking like they could walk out of like a BDSM 
you know, uh, cause event or something, but they're doing something completely sexless. Well, what, what did people, what did, what did people think of the Emma Peel confession? Cause that's one of the best scenes in the series, right? Where he's talking when, when his shrink sort of pushes him on that point. Well, the shrink pushes him on that point. And it's not just then about Irma Vep. It's also about Connie Nielsen and demon lover. Right. And these, and, and, and all the stuff about costumes and the, you know, uh, costumes and, and superhero movies and clouds of Sils Maria. But this is the thing is on top of everything else that the show is. And this is, I think where that idea of niches within niches within niches. Cause I mean, who really cares about Olivia Assayas' fantasy life outside of Olivia Assayas, but he's putting it out there. Right. And the listeners of film comment of the film comment. And the listeners of but but what I mean is when when Devika is talking about the insistence that SAS has on a kind of eroticism, like it's in the first Irmavep where there's so much about how is Maggie Chung going to be costumed and how's the costume going to fit on her, and you see again states of slippage in the first movie where she's got the leather top but jeans on and hanging out, right, and the illusion's kind of only half there. He is doing this stuff to contrast, I think, the sexlessness of Marvel movies, which people have written about a lot, which you have fitness and you know, you know, you know, physical fitness and muscled bodies and a kind of anodyne perfection and just absolutely none of that proto-cinematic charge, which he's good at filming because it's one thing he's good at as a director, but he's insisting on it. And he's also pulling it out of the DNA of Vampire because it's everywhere in there. But even just like in the first episode, the, the former lovers are having dinner, two actors in the production and, you know, bringing up things like intimacy coordinators, like he's definitely you know, dealing with in a granular way with this on every level of contemporary uh, movie making. And what makes Mira's character a liability is the same thing that happens to Maggie Chung in the first term of F, which is almost like she becomes kind of hypnotized by the role that she's playing and starts acting out in ways that in addition to being similar to, to Musadora or, or to Irma Vep, they're not like correct. You know, I think that it's a really interesting motif between the original series, the original movie and the show. I don't know if any if that struck any of you. Yeah, I so I think my biggest complaint about the show is actually and it's a complaint, but also I, I see it as something that's sort of a, a meaty aspect of it. But, you know, Alicia Vikander's character and her arm of that and like my bias is that I've never really understand the appeal of Alicia Vikander, period. Um, but like she, to me, she sort of plays the part with a sort of like trained vacantness. Yeah, I agree. And you know, it's very obvious. Vapidness, perhaps. <laughs> vapidness, yeah. yeah. And then even like her American accent has a certain like cadence to it that's just so like not, doesn't have like personality um, or a, a trained personality. And you know, it's, it's very obvious it's trying to frame her as this sort of professional performer, you know, not just in her actual acting, but in her day-to-day, the way she conducts herself with anyone. Um, you know, I think there's various times where like she lies, like she says different things to different people. Like I think in the very beginning, she talks about having watched the series three times and then to someone else, she's like, oh, I didn't actually watch that much of it. So like, what's, what's the truth? Like what's the actual person behind like the various masks she put on um, as someone that's just like this huge star. And, you know, when you think of someone that's, I guess, playing in superhero movies, it's that um, attuned to like the faces she needs to put on. It's just like, where is the actual, you know, root of, of this person? And so I think that's sort of intentional, if not that flattering to Alicia Vikander and like the possibilities of her persona. But, you know, I think, you know, the fact that she is an American actress 
who does these commercial films. Um, I mean, that kind of plays into it. And Well, I do think that in, everyone was like, they're casting Alicia Vikander in a part that Maggie Chung made iconic. I think the series addresses that in a really clever way. I mean, I was surprised and her character sort of grown on me, I will say, because partly, you know, you get to know that again, that she's like, they're trying to get her for an ad campaign. So like the choice of this big, bland American movie star is, you know, is aimed at infiltrating, you know, a certain kind of market. But also what is what I saw, so I rewatched the 96 movie yesterday and it just struck me how much that movie wrestles with like the otherness of Maggie Chung. Obviously, she's a Chinese star in this French production. And there is this constant feeling like queasy feeling you have while watching it. And something that that Rene Vidal actually admits that he's fetishizing her as like this Chinese hottie, you know, um, this, you know, and there's almost this people seem to be grappling in that movie okay, she clearly has beautiful star presence, but is it just that or are we also exoticizing her, right? And it's like they're grappling with the lines between that. And to me, it's really interesting. Like here, there's almost a sense of how do you... Here, there's a different kind of transnationalism, right, in the series where instead of going for something that is maybe... Like desire is works in complex ways when it's on screen. And sometimes you are drawn to someone on screen because that's the magic of cinema and their personality. But there's all sorts of other ways in which desire works in messy ways in real life that infiltrates that relationship to the screen. And here the point seems to be to take out all of that messy stuff and instead go for like this mass appeal, you know, bland actors who are who can can be cashed in I, there's some kind of tension there well, well i think that there's you know that, that you see that you see that desire play out in the series too especially between the the uh, zoe character in this in a similar way that it happened in the 96 film where it's sort of clearly there's some t- tension there and then you know things kind of dissipate or are avoided or people are just kind of turning their heads away but one major difference here is that in the original one the Maggie Chung character is ultimately ditched because she's perceived to maybe be not commercial enough and then at the last minute they're like oh but she's got this Ridley Scott deal she's and got- not French enough and not French enough right but in the new version they're like we need a major Chinese star to like to, to do finance a bit this, to do to a, do bit, a role bit role in order to yeah. make money in the international market. The fetishization here of this exotic actress is very just coming from a totally different place, like right. in this in this new version. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. The original, it kind of starts with the behind the scenes. Yeah, kind of like Altman. More like realistic look into the production. But then, you know, halfway through, it does shift into a more... Yeah, it shifts into a character study and it also becomes increasingly surreal. And, you know, Maggie, I think, emerges as a, as a much you know, more uh, raw figure. And we really are concerned with her by the end of it, you know, despite all these other interesting comments on 
on you know the film industry and whatnot but it's ultimately you know is about her but she was also like a huge global or a huge yeah. star at the time like, yeah so yeah it, it opens up you know just not just her as like you know an actress and like her personality but you know the various facets of yeah. her star persona and how that spoke to you know the globalized film industry and whatnot and an industry looking to do crossovers as adam mentions in his piece like that's why John Woo is cited so much in that first film. I think I think both of I think all of you have cracked it, uh, or or I agree in terms of the the way that this show figures transnationalism. Like you may notice among the many anachronisms in trying to restage the vampire, you will notice it's very multicultural extras, right? To no effect, but to extremely suggestive effect. Extremely suggestive effect, probably about the production within the movie, but also extremely suggestive effect about the HBO production. And of course, this is one of those mise en beam type movies where you're imagining, you know, the actual camera crew behind the faked camera crew that we're seeing recording, you know, choreography and filling in spots with extras. But I was going to say about the first film and back to that idea of, of slippage, which I sort of insist is important, is that in the first Irma Vep, Maggie Chung does not conduct herself as an Irma Vep type character. It happens to her quite involuntarily. She has the sleepless nights, the jet lag gets to her, she's taking pills, and then she has this sort of like trance-like evening where there's something about the role that possesses her. And it does, as Beatrice said, slip into a, a, a character study, but it's a character who is not an operator for the rest of the movie. She gets desire projected onto her because she's such a big star. This show's longer and in some ways, there's more downtime and you have to fill things. And so I think it's much more consistent and, and built into this show that Mira is in her career and in her personal life and in her sex life, which are all built out in a way the original movie never built out because it's so swift and has so much compression. She is a kind of Irma Vep-like figure. This idea of being possessed by the part and her ruthlessness and her dishonesty and her game playing and her mask playing in this serial that Asayas is making, make her much closer to an analog for Irma Vep. In the movie, Maggie only becomes Irma Vep very briefly. And part of what's funny about the movie is she's so guileless and sweet, right? And, th and then we buy into that because she's playing ourselves and she's being filmed so lovingly by her partner or future partner, sort of imminent partner. And when you guys are talking about Alicia Vikander not being Maggie Chung, I mean, that's all anybody can really think when they hear the project announced. It's all you can think while you're watching it, which is why when the show makes the turns that it does to not just like try and work with that, but to basically say to you, hey, we know this. Yeah. And this is now in a way where we've left off now in the third and fourth episode. It, that is almost becoming the subject right i think alicia vikander among other things has got to be a pretty good sport considering yeah. where the script for this show which people will not have seen yet and we're dancing around but <laughs> considering because you can talk about the original film in its totality and what maggie chung means in it and maybe what she doesn't mean anymore because of her retirement right it's crazy to think that there's a version of a tarantino movie tarantino being seen by exponentially more people than anything SAS will ever make that had a whole Maggie Chung part that for various reasons got cut out and Michael Mann movie right she was asked to read for heat I mean if you want to talk about a structuring absence as you guys are saying she's massive and then within this show right they're not just pushing her off screen in a way where she's actually off screen she's felt as the show goes on yeah, that becomes the subject, I think, especially, well, at least for the stretch that we're currently in. And to full disclosure, 
we've only seen the first four episodes. I believe there are a total of eight. Well, there is there is this exchange in the first movie again because I saw it yesterday. It's very fresh for me where. When Ivaral, like, toward the end is telling Maggie it's not going to work out. Also, you're actually an object. Like, Irma Vep is just an object. She's a fetish. And she, Maggie... De, Jean, likes to De chill. Jean-Pierre Leo. Yeah. René Vidal. And um, Maggie, being this good sport, is like, well, that's okay because uh, movies are made of desire. Like, desire makes movies. I found that so rich now, having watched the latter two episodes that we're talking about, where it's like getting psychoanalytic, right? Like, we're... And we're in... Therapy. We're in the new Rene Vidal's therapy sessions where he's like, I think Olivia Sayas. So we're like getting deep into Olivia Sayas's mind. He's clearly playing with us a little bit because, you know, um, some of those things sound so pathetic that I can't believe that Olivia Sayas would like just put them on the screen like that. Yeah, it's newfound love of auto fiction. Where where could it have come from? But I think it seems he seems to be grappling with the idea that like. What does it mean to make movies from a place of desire? Well, yeah, but th- but then as we were saying, like the the Rene Vidal character seems to have like there's no tension whatsoever between him and Alicia Vikander's Mira. There is no desire as there was between Leo and but yeah, but that is the point, right? Right, right, which is the point. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up this question of desire because you know to me the series is sort of about the impossibility of of making something like as radical and like in, inventive and like, you know, you brought up like, okay, the original The Vampires was actually like very much a commercial product, but it, it did, you know, because of sort of the lawlessness of under which it was made and the fact that there was not actually a, a rule book to making these sorts of things that did sort of have this, this, this originality that you can't deny. And so, you know, in, in this modern context, it, it, it's interesting that Rene Vidal has this crisis, like, why would I even try to make something like that? It's like, actually, not just impossible by the fact that he's just the filmmaker he is, but just like by the very nature of the system under which these films are made, it's just like, how how could he actually make something truly in, in, inventive? And, and I think this kind of plays back into the um, or Alicia Vikander's character, you know, this idea that with Irma Vep, she's finally, you know, doing a, a more rewarding and, and challenging part. And, you know, at the same time, that's almost like part of the, you know, typical trajectory of any actor that's trying to like sculpt their image and like, you know, make it seem as if, you know, they also do other things. So it's all just part of this grand strategy. And, and I love that the the, the uh, actual scenes of her acting or preparing. There's no script. She just like watches a YouTube video of the original before like being rushed out to the to the set. And it, so like her the depth of the Ermavec character in the you know film within a film within a film is like pretty pretty uh, non-existent. <laughs> like how is she? What what is she relating to here other than like this negative force? Like this nothing that is you know Irma Bep clothed in black allowing people to project their desires onto well I, I wonder what you guys think of this too which is the idea that um you know in the world of the in the world of the show you know you have all this this judgmental talk about different kinds and different genres of movies and a superhero movie is good for your career but an art movie is good for your prestige and whatever else I say us is an omnivorous cinephile 
you read the stuff he wrote. I mentioned this in my Ringer piece. You read his Kaye pieces from when he was writing there. I mean, he liked Richard Donner, Superman. He wrote, you know, a, a, a hymn to Sylvester Stallone's face, you know. Oh, what does it mean to be a cinephile is the well, question. <laughs> well, okay, so I'll, 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 I'll rephrase. As a, as a, fil- as a film critic, he, he's one of those, well, you know, one of those critics who doesn't seem to differentiate or judge on an a priori basis that this is for grownups and this is for kids and this is commercial and this is his, his art house. And my certain, my favorite of his movies are his B movies. I love Demon Lover and I really like Boarding Gate and I like when the streams get crossed and he's kind of doing really disreputable, gritty, lurid material because I think he has a talent for it, but I think also he he doesn't condescend to it. So I think about the scene in Clouds of Sils Maria, speaking of condescension, when Benoche and Kristen Stewart, who are totally being evoked here in the assistant relationship, like daringly so, you know, the assistant is like a little elfin Kristen Stewart clone with even more elf-like ears. I mean, that's who she is. And who gazes at Alicia Vikander's butt. Yeah. Yeah. But they go go in Clouds of Sils Maria to see the fake X-Men movie. That Chloe Grace Moretz is in. And it's like a dry run for all the superhero stuff on Irma Vep, which, by the way, isn't really that believable. The way they talk about these movies, they're like in Doomsday, you know, like the guy gets his dick cut off in the movie. I'm like, that would never happen in a Marvel movie. <laughs> you have to, you have to see, like... you know, the, the dick first. But <laughs> in, in Clouds of Sils Maria, they have this like, di- they have this quite philosophical dialectical conversation after where they are representing different generations and approaches to film going and different star types because you're not just watching the characters you're watching Juliette Binoche of the French cinema Juliette Binoche and Kristen Stewart of Twilight basically talking about what should audiences like and what are audiences allowed to like and what can critics take seriously and justifying their own choices in in, like as actors justifying their choices as actors and I've always thought that SAS does not hate the mainstream stuff he calls it doomsday in the movie because he's funny and because there's <laughs> something vaguely apocalyptic about marvel cinematic universe which is the worst thing in the world and all that but he doesn't seem to hate the stuff he's quite curious about it yeah and he's unafraid to be it that's what i was getting at earlier and why gossip girl came to my mind is because the show does really give in to kind of the silly and salacious aspects of I don't even know how to, I wouldn't call it trash TV, but it gives into, you know, some of those low-hanging fruit uh, that, you know, I think many people do enjoy in contemporary television. And so even though there's all the self-reflexivity about what it means to make television, what it means to remake stuff, it doesn't come from an overly critical or, you know, sneering place at all. He's also actually having so much fun with just making an HBO show about, you know, hot actors. Like, and that you, you've you seen, like, we've seen that a little bit in Clouds of Sils Maria too. I mean, he's not afraid to kind of go into the pulpy, into the sexy, into the B-movie aspects uh, of whatever genre he's working with. And here, I think he's really enjoying that. He's enjoying all the little dramas, all the, you know, name dropping, uh, you know, referencing, all the like kind of millennial talk. I mean, the, I have to say the thing that I found really off-putting in the first episode was Alicia Vikander and her assistant's mil- like millennial LA drawl. It's so effective. It's very know. forced. Yeah. And, but he, he seems to be really enjoying like having these, characters interact with each other on screen. I I would agree, but I think that part of the weakness of the show is that he's sort of, there's like 
the side of him that is really enjoying this and the relishing in it. But then there's also just like the irony, like the meta elements that's also, you know, kind of mocking the, the possibilities for any of this to be like authentic or, or true right. or feel raw. And so I think that there's that impasse that, you know, it's, I think it works better with uh, pretty much most of the other like French characters, but with like, you know, Alicia and like her assistant, you know, I think that there does try to be a certain, you know, her drama with like her lovers and stuff. And like all of that to me, like, I, I don't really buy it. It feels flat. I, I want it to be juicier, but it almost feels like tacked on in order to create like a juicier character type study. You kind of check out when well, any scene with her ex-lover, Eamon, I'm just kind of like, this is so boring. Like, let's just like let her have this. Yeah, yeah, he sucks. <laughs> I mean, one of the but one of the things I find that watching a TV show, and it's, again, we're like we're having to put everything in quotes. Like, is this a TV show? Is Twin Peaks a TV show? Is it a dessert topping? People <laughs> tweeted about this a lot when this happened, but it's like, yeah, we're not relitigating that. No, <laughs> no, not no, not relitigating. Yeah, it, but. I find that even when the most talented, let's call them filmmakers, make TV shows, I'm a I I prefer the compression that you get in cinema, mm -hmm. right? Mm, even yes, the, you know the, com the the compression of a great three hour movie versus the compression of a good eight hour series or whatever else. I feel like here, again, that idea of slippage or that idea of bleeding through, he's kind of having things every way at once. And Beatrice's right. point about the weakness of the show is so apt because i think beatrice you're right he he's kind of trying to have things multiple ways at once and that's a bit of a drag too because i'm not sure where his real conviction lies because if mm. everything's an escape hatch right and if everything is metatextual and if everything is 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 ultimately reducible to a joke or a or or, or pastiche it's like where's the conviction Can on I, the other hand i disagree <laughs> well no i i, I also kind of i also kind of disagree because i feel like what well, I, I also I agree in, on one hand in that I do think that the the show is is weaker than the film, for example, because of the, its length and because there are these kind of what seems to be filler. And there's so many ideas and so many so many you know metatextual uh, tricks being pulled. But I think one of the things that he does well is that he makes these incredibly kind of intellectual and idea heavy films that then he pushes these ideas to to a, to a density that they where they kind of dissolve into moments of like rapturous poetry and uh, this sounds like i realize that as i'm saying this sounds absolutely ridiculous you sound like a character from nonfiction. <laughs> i know i know but i'm just i'm trying to articulate like that moment in the original arm of ep when you see the rene vidal's uh, vision and the black and white 35 millimeter vision or earlier when the Sonic Youth song when uh, starts playing and there's this like totally crazy scene that is echoed and kind of mixed into this into this new show and I what I see happening or you know what I hope happens is that that sort of density kind of continues to grow in the series and we get to this point of like actual feeling actual poetry yeah i mean first of all like i have to say i like i actually love tv for what it is i love television as its own thing and so hardcore fraser head not but i've always like loved you know television as a form of its own that has a different structure to it that was born out of a different economic context and 
I don't necessarily, you know, the thing with auteurs making TV nowadays is that I think they're often trying to make long movies and don't really have sight of the fact that TV is its own form, long form is its own thing. What I'm loving about this show is that SAS is not afraid to actually make a TV show and use all the devices of TV. He's not trying to be a filmmaker making a prestige miniseries. And, you know, I actually like the fact that there isn't a clear sense, a clear position in the show because, you know, I I don't necessarily think the sincerity and the irony are like there's a tension between them. It feels endearing to me because, you know, uh, what he's grappling with a little bit here is that being a purist about form can only go so far. Like, that's why if you look back at what Fayad was doing, it had its own commercial, you know, structure. There was, you know, these things are often reclaimed retrospectively. They respond to the moment. But I think what he is grappling with is the corporatization of media culture and TV culture. And that you can love lowbrow and highbrow stuff. You can love different forms. But then you have to kind of reckon with this big machine, this big commercial machine. And that has like almost like moral and political implications like when you start like giving into a kind of mono- like media monopoly in the original film they talk about the finance the financing coming from the state in this new one the financing is coming from like a massive multinational corporation <laughs> and like and both of these ideas are kind of brought well, up well this yeah. was a this was this was the point on the other end of my sentence that i didn't finish right oh, i stole it adam no 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 <laughs> I no 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 it, well no just that that what bothers me or is potentially mm. bothersome because I'm with Beatrice on this, but there's an unevenness and there's a, there's a in quotes or a kind of in italics that can be annoying. Mm-hmm. But I think that also what is a better subject for something being made in 2022 than the question of conviction. Right. And, and I think that it's actually kind of daring for the show to make it seem at times like, where's this show's conviction lie? Why does this show exist? Uh, because these are the same questions that the people involved in making the, the the on-screen show are asking. I feel SAS is asking them of himself and asking them of his particular viewership and asking them specifically of a viewership, I think, whose job it is to kind of like, you know, keep, keep, keep an eye on this stuff and keep tabs of the stuff. Because again, I'm not saying it to be insulting, but I'm trying to be kind of fair to what this show's popularity is. What is the audience for this show, right? Who Who is going to watch this show accidentally? <laughs> Le public, as uh, René Vidal says. <laughs> no, but it's a but it's but it's a good question because HBO commands a subscriber based audience. I mean, you know, and and there are people who watch things because they're on HBO. Lots of people watch things by accident, and yet I can't think of a time where there's more targeted ideas of viewership. And when I think about who this show is targeted towards, it's like the kind of people who would do a podcast about it. And that's not meant as an insult. It's just interesting because it's about mainstream culture but it does not belong to any kind of giant mainstream culture it describes the way that stuff is made but i really think this is a pretty self-selecting venture i don't know if you guys think that i'm wrong about this i definitely agree with you definitely definitely um i there's a moment in one episode where they're like riding a scooter to a party and somebody's like oh i gotta go to that royal trucks concert tonight and then they're like, and then somebody else they're like oh, i'm gonna miss the royal trucks concert because i'm at this party and the guy's like they won't even show up and that it's like what well, that reference is literally for like 10 people like nobody nobody knows who Roy- this is the same thing it's like this is a world that that is like 
it it immediately made me suspicious that this movie was so targeted towards me, that I, you know, <laughs> that I that I couldn't like, or that this show was targeted. You know, just do you think that um, a wider audience might actually watch it because of Alicia Vikander? I mean, I think it's because of the Royal Trucks references. They're going to bring in that bigger that crowd. But Alicia Vikander is so mainstream. Uh, but is she a big star? Is she like a name? Does she? command an audience she's been in like tomb raider and the green knight i'm i'm not sure if she has like you know a huge following that will watch anything she appears in but i do wonder if um her casting will prove to be strategic who who is a movie star anymore other than tom cruise who true kristen stewart i don't know anytime we do anything about any of these people like there's you know millions of twitter accounts that are like you know kate blanchett lovers united yeah. and and like there's these groups of people who like swarm in on a tweet and retweet it endlessly so I mean, those people are stars in that way like they'll watch whatever weird movie Kristen stewart's in yeah and have no idea what Le vampire is or have seen it <laughs> irma vep until then you know until they see that presumably not to be, not to make any assumptions. Kristen Stewart's much bigger than Alicia Vikander. That's my it. point. Yeah. Several uh, flops. That, yeah. <laughs> Beatrice has spoken. <laughs> the ranking. But, but Beatrice, I'm also not wrong because you're sort of, you're a resident serial historian. The thing about Vampire being popular when it played or about any of these things being popular is that there is no, there was no meta level or casting level i mean it's the pure elemental appeal of the narrative which has to do with the different stages that an art form and an industrialized art form is in right part of what's so nostalgic about both movies but it's especially nostalgic here is that you can't you can't go back right you you, you can go back but you can't go back is that yeah, that's, annoying that's his say? crisis that's, that's why the he crisis. Like stops filming he's like why how why am i even trying <laughs> i mean it's, yeah this is psychoanalysis right yeah. enacted on screen <laughs> but Beatrice I'm right right that the or you tell me like the popularity of those early serials is not dependent on the celebrity of the performers right the characters and the narrative are the and the spectacle are the appeal I mean it's pretty much the spectacle and the stunts that's like just getting them to do crazy things like I mean maybe by our standards these things didn't seem that crazy but you know in 1912 if the series goes to the new series says anything they are crazy by our standards too it's true it's true yeah. and, and and that's what's funny about it it's just like you think oh today like the stunts the action would be so much bigger and yet you know a modern day production would have so many more uh, restrictions and insurance you know safeguards to you know disallow this sort of madness that characterized the original and and you're right like you know, there weren't, I mean, there were like uh, actors that were known on like the reviews back in the day, like back in the day on the stage, like Musadora was like a, a pretty much like a, not Broadway, but like a cheaper version of that uh, performer, like on the Folie Bergère type stage doing she's, like song and dance acts. I remember that in the original. I don't think we yeah. mentioned yeah. that. Yeah. Well, she's, 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 she's come up. <laughs> But yes, these were all like theater actors, but I don't think that star power really manifested in the way it, it does now with, you know. <laughs> I mean, that was interesting too, because I was reading um, that she she was an acrobat and so she would do these stunts herself, including 
rolling down the side yeah. of a tall building with like a piece of rope tied around her waist. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it's in and in, in the '96 Irma Vep, Maggie Chung. Someone tells her like, "Oh, I saw your movie, and you did you you're like a, a gymnast, an acrobat, or you know, you're a dancer." And she's like, "Well, those are stunts. Yeah, those are stunts, people." Um, and it's funny; it, it jokes on it. There's um the Lars Isinger character who's like so so funny but he's like uh addicted to crack and it's just this crazy in real life but then like when you see him perform in this like the series within the series he's like the most dedicated like serious actor of them all and is like wanting to be on top of a moving car without the harness he says he Um, he says he does his own stunts it's in his yeah he does his own stunt but then, well, he's, he's, then, yeah, he's he sort of backs down when he's threatened with legal I think, yeah, action. He's if he does not, yeah. But he's that right, other, when it comes he's, to money. <laughs> he's 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 another source of that slippage, right? Because he seems to be being possessed a little bit by this maniacal character that he's playing. And then some of the other younger actors, they just can't get it. I love that scene where they're talking about the poison ring and the actress is playing it wrong, and she just sort of feels like this is just such a silly plot twist. You know, like, I, I love the idea of the production that not everyone is on board. And to some extent, it's kind of generational, right? That the 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 the, the younger actors just can't fathom these scenarios or situations or this kind of narrative. Um, and maybe it's also a little bit like how TV works, right? Like, not everyone involved ever has the full picture, often. Yeah, that's a good point, too. The Lars Edinger character says they ask him why he wants to play this character instead of, like, a the lead hero character. And he says that the character, Murano, who he's playing, who's, like, this arch criminal who is more evil even than the vampires, is, like, he says that it, because this person is pure evil. And it's, like... It's just that he's more interested in like the mood of the character than in any kind of plot details. He has, like, yeah. could give a shit whether it. or not it makes sense <laughs> that like the poison it. ring works. And I think the Devin Ross character, the assistant, also is like kind of nitpicky about about plot points throughout to the younger kind of millennial character. Yeah, she is. And interestingly, she's a more nostalgic one. She's a more purist, you know, one when it comes to art because she wants to be a filmmaker. So there's. I don't know. There's, it's just, there's a lot of stuff going on generationally and culturally. It's, um, it's kind of a hard one to talk about. I'm realizing as we're talking about it, it's well, it's just, it's as Adam was saying, it's just like trapdoor after trapdoor after trapdoor. So you, every everything you mentioned kind of opens up a whole new avenue of discussion. On that note, before we go too far down, lose our way, don't find the escape hatch. Right. Any closing thoughts? What's going to happen in the next episode? Yeah, the poisoner. I think it's actually called no. the poisoner's. It's. Oh. I think it's called the hypnotizing eyes, which is like one of the more famous entries in the original. Yeah. The better translation is the eyes that hypnotize. Ah. <laughs> or the eyes that fascinate. Is that somewhere That's, quoted somewhere? So that was that was the title of the Lucy Sant article on the vampires on Criterion site, and that's her personal translation because she liked the way it sounded better. Really? Okay. <laughs> in, but in the '96 Irma Vep movie, doesn't he say the eyes that fascinate? If you yes, saw the movie, uh, if you saw the movie yesterday, Debbie, you remember it's one of the funnier. And it's very loaded. It's a behind-the-scenes rehearsal bit. Where yeah. the actor's like, yeah, yeah, we really have to do this, right? And he yeah. doesn't. It's the extra, and it's very much a kind of comedy. It's like, oh, I'm going to practice hypnotizing you, but it's also like a come on, right? Which oh, yeah. she is, yeah. which she is so pure and sort of oblivious to. And then when she gets it, she's very good at deflecting it because that's what Maggie does through the whole movie. Is she deflects people's 
desire until she finally grows some of her own, right? When she when she steals the jewels from the naked Arsene. I'm wondering if we're going to have that in the show. But it seems like the it seems like one of the things that's going to probably have to happen in 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 you know in doing the show is we're just going to have the spine of Vampire as the structure, right? We're going to get the mm. whole narrative of the Fiat film because each episode has been named for one of its chapters. Yes. Right. So maybe mm. if you go back to the original, it's a way to be predictive about subsequent episodes and maybe the way the behind the scenes narrative will mirror the the front one. Yeah, maybe we'll see the actors actually unfolding from the building with the yeah. <laughs> with the the carpet around their waist unfolding. I'm not sure they could afford the insurance on this particular production. For that maybe that'll stunt, be a big but... insurance question, yeah. a big debate on the series. So remind me, Beatrice, maybe you know this, how many chapters there were of the uh, original uh, Les Vampires? Ten, uh, but they were all different lengths. It could be like... Some were 20 minutes, some were like an hour and 10 minutes. Okay, so, and this is eight episodes, so I'm... Yeah, they they did skip over a little bit, but it's generally been following, like, or been calling themselves after the names of, like, the original in order. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I'd be curious afterwards to do kind of a pedantic thing of, like, what did they skip and how did they make, you know... 10 into 8. It just seems like he's playing with every little detail, you know, every sort of aspect of translation and retranslation and yeah. I must say that the the scenes from the original that they do include, they they are like the most exciting ones because the vampire, if you like watch the whole thing, it you know, it has its slow moments of just like you know, the detective in the room just sort of waving his hand for extended periods of time. It's a little sleepy, but it's punctuated by those like crazy moments of action. Well, if you watch it with a live piano player, I'm sure it's a little bit more exciting. The organist <laughs> rising up out of that. Yes. Yep. Uh, all right, then. Well, let's let's wrap it over there. And uh, we'll be, you know, uh, we've seen four episodes. The second episode screens today, if you're listening. Um, and there's more to come. So let's see if anything we've said holds. If Asayas <laughs> like completely, you know, it goes in a different direction. I, I'm ready for anything at this point, And I'm very curious to see how our assessments feel at the end of the eight weeks in, once in, we've seen all in, the episodes. In, in six weeks, you do, we do a five-minute follow-up podcast. <laughs> that basically we is must. Like, wrong, right, wrong, right, wrong. We'll do a podcaster's commentary on this episode. On episode like, we'll listen to it and comment on it. We'll remake it. We're going to remake this episode. <laughs> As a oh. serial, as a Clint, as a whole season of the film comment podcast. Clint, you're tempting me. <laughs> we might have to make it happen. Adam and Beatrice's contracts will be sent to you shortly. <laughs> I have nothing better to do, so sure. Nerd out, let that appear. I remember that. <laughs> All right, thank you guys both so much for joining. It was a pleasure as always. Thank you. It was fun. This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Mubi and made possible by our subscribers and by the members and patrons of Film at Lincoln Center. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.
This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is brought to you by Music Box Films, presenting Lost Illusions, the César award-winning lush adaptation of the classic Balzac novel. When an aspiring poet joins a cynical team of journalists in 19th century Paris, he soon discovers that the written word can be an instrument of both beauty and deceit. Now in select theaters, including film at Lincoln Center.